0: Well, what do you do when someone you love is going the wrong way in life? More specifically, what do you do when you see someone being influenced by the wrong people? Maybe they're in with a bad crowd that's dragging them down into sin and and error. What can you do? You can't control people. All you can do is try and influence them. Because you love them, you you reason with them, you, you try and appeal to them that, that they're going down the wrong way and the crowd they're with is is taking them down with them. In fact, as part of this appeal, you might even show them what lies at the end of the path they're on. If they just keep going down this road with this crowd, this is where you're you're going to end up. And kids, for example, looking for acceptance they often latch on to the first group that gives them such acceptance. So maybe you can think back to your own past. You were a teen kid, fell in with the wrong crowd, as an adult, you reflect now and you know where such a crowd is headed. You've seen it played out many times yourself, and maybe you learn the hard way where such a crowd takes you. Yeah, but if you have a loved one going down that same road, you, you know, you feel compelled to appeal to them, to call them back away from that road. I bring this up because, well, I, I once described me. I once was like this. I went to a private school, kindergarten through sixth, and seventh grade transferred over to a public school, And I wanted to be accepted. So I fell in with the first crowd, which was just happened to be the the skater crowd, the skateboarding crowd. So you can try and picture it, little Eric with long hair down to my shoulders and a skateboard. I keep those pictures secret. (laughs) And this crowd not surprisingly turned into the slacker and the drug crowd by high school. Now, it's purely by God's grace that I escaped this crowd. I'm not even sure how. I wasn't a Christian at the time. But I guess God gave me enough sense to realize where that crowd was going. And so I got out before it was too late and switched trajectories. And I really do thank God for his grace and just providential intervening in my life. Because looking back now, literally 20 years later, and here we are. And where, where is that crowd now? And sadly, I can say you know, I know where many of them are. Several have died from overdoses. Others are still addicts. One guy went to jail and then was paralyzed. Many have no careers they're hopping from job to job trying to support multiple kids from multiple marriages or multiple relationships. And I don't know about you, but I don't see a, a lot of peace and joy there. It doesn't look like that the path to blessing to me. And more importantly, they're, they're not pleasing God. They're not serving God. We don't thumb our nose because, as the saying goes there, but the grace of God go I. It could have been me. But... At least we know this is what the world offers. This is where the way of the world goes. It offers passing momentary pleasure for lasting hardship. And so again, what do you do when someone you love is, is going the wrong way in life? You see them starting down that trajectory, but hopefully you appeal to them in love that this, this is where that road leads. And really, it's along these lines that scripture itself is filled with tons of such appeals to us. All of us, even after coming to Christ, we're still prone to wander. Our old selves desire a measure of acceptance from the world, and this can lead some to to compromise their standards, go astray. They get pulled into a crowd that drags them back down the wrong way. But this is a problem because that that path only leads back to ruin, hardship, sin, and death. There's no blessing there. It's just a mirage. And so God, like, like a loving Father, through the writers of Scripture, he's always appealing to us, to his children, crying out to us through the counsel of his word, to, as if to say, you know, don't, don't, don't go there, don't go astray, don't go down that road. That there's nothing there but, but destruction, but judgment, but ruin. The way of Christ, it, it's, it really is the only way. It's, it's a narrow way, but just find it, stay on it. And also beware whom you associate with, who influences you. Like 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. And God appeals to us, don't let the world counsel you, influence you, but let your counsel be be Christ and the Word. And one notable appeal in this regard is found in, in Psalm 1, just the first Psalm. Verse 1 says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, This is a poetic way of just describing hanging out with the wrong crowd. A blessing isn't found there. Don't stand, uh, don't walk with them, don't stand with them, don't sit with them, don't associate with them, and don't be influenced by them. Don't take your counsel from them. They're going the wrong way. Instead, where should you get your counsel from? Well, from the Word. And so verse 2 in Psalm 1 says, But his delight, meaning the blessed man, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, that sounds a lot better. That sounds like a much better path to take. And all throughout scripture, you see this the same tale, a tale of two ways, the way of the world and the way of the Lord just woven all throughout Scripture, these two ways, and they they don't really change much. But they are going in opposite directions. One leads to peace and joy, the other to sin and hardship. One leads to blessing and and salvation, the other to suffering and damnation. So which way should you go? I mean, it should sound like a no-brainer, but sin is deceitful. The world is alluring. And therefore, God often appeals to us in Scripture, to, to go the right way, run the right way, and press on in the right direction. We're going to find another such appeal in our passage for this morning, found in Philippians chapter 3. So grab your Bibles, open them there as we get to the end of this chapter, Philippians chapter 3. In this final, final passage, verses 17 through 21, Paul, he's, he's like a spiritual father to the church of Philippi, and he's appealing to them. He's concerned that a dangerous crowd is going to roll through the church and potentially drawing some away. The Philippian church was overall going pretty strong, but false teachers, they were on the prowl, like wolves in sheep's clothing, infiltrating the church. It's only a matter of time before they reach Philippi, and so Paul writes to appeal to them to stay on that narrow way. Keep following his example, keep following Christ, and just beware that that way of the world it's it's broad it's easy to fall back into that way, but it only leads to destruction in fact, in a way somewhat similar to Psalm one, Paul even contrasts here where these two ways end up for example, back in Psalm one if you keep reading verses four through six, say this it says the wicked are not so, meaning blessed, but they're like The chaff which the wind drives away, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These two roads, these two ways, they have two destinations. And and one is not good. One is judgment. But the other is blessing. The other is, is life eternal. So just heed this counsel, stay on the right way. In the previous passage we just studied, Paul was energetically exhorting them to just keep running the race of faith, just press on in the pursuit of Christ toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. You've got to keep running your race of faith until the end. But now in the follow-up passage, he appeals to them to just don't, don't deviate from your race. The racetrack it is scattered with dropouts. Those who once looked like they were running well, but that they were dragged down by the wrong crowd, the wrong influences. Like leeches, the world latched onto them and, and drained away their spiritual vitality. And many proved to be fake runners from the start. The message to us is clear. Just keep running and keep running the right way, the way of the Lord. And in the passage before us, Paul goes on to, to highlight what the right way looks like, what the wrong way looks like, and where these two ways end up. And so with this in mind, let's just read the passage, Philippians 3. To finish the chapter, verses 17 through 21, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, That they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, we find in this passage just a basic appeal to run the right way. After telling us to press on in our race, now Paul tells us to just make sure we're pressing on in the right direction, in the right path. And for this, we find some examples He highlights examples that will take us in the right way and some examples that will take us in the wrong way, complete with with a, a depiction of where these two ways end up. And so this morning, let's just go through this passage again and explore it that we too might heed this appeal to run the right way. From this passage, two pictures emerge. Number one, a picture of running the right way. First, a picture of running the right way. Verse 17 again. Look there, verse 17. He says, "Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us." Here, Paul begins by urging us to follow his example. Paul himself, he's he's running. He's pressing on, and he's on the right way. You would do well to follow him, follow in his footsteps. He just confessed in the previous passage what he's doing. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is passionately pursuing the Lord, and you would do well to to follow him, to do the same. Now, still you might question why, why Paul? I mean, what is he like a perfect example? What makes him the, the picture of, of Christ? Well, it's not like he's perfect. In fact, in the previous passage he, he confessed he, he was not perfect. He had not arrived in perfect Christlikeness. And back to verse 12, he says, "Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also." I was laid hold of by Christ. But this we find actually a special value in Paul's example because he, he hadn't arrived but was still pressing on to follow Christ. Christ, of course, he, he's the ultimate example. He's the standard. He is the one we're aiming for. Christ-likeness is the goal. But, you know, there's a few things we can't learn from Christ's example. We can't learn how to wrestle with the sinful flesh from his example we can't learn how to repent of sin or respond to sin in our life at least not from his example that that's where we just we can't get much from him from how he walked he was without sin but in this race of faith there's a cloud of witnesses those who've gone before us and their examples help show us the way to christ And God, in his perfect wisdom, knows that sometimes we benefit from examples that are a little closer to our level. For example, let's say you decide to pick up piano. You're going to try and teach yourself piano. I did this once with your little face. And you just go online and watch a bunch of videos and just mimic them. And you can do that. You can can watch some virtuosos play piano, and you can learn a little from them. But at the same time, they're playing at such a higher level, such a faster speed, perfect technique. You're going to have trouble just, just keeping up. You might find it also useful to to learn from the example of maybe someone who aspires to be that virtuoso, but they're a little closer to your level. And look, Jesus, he's the goal. We know that. We're following him, seeking to be conformed to his image. But Sometimes it can feel like he's far away. We fall short. We keep stumbling in our race. How are we ever going to get there? Just the goal is so far. But as you look forward to Christ, your eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of your faith, as you're focused on him, you should see in your peripheral vision some other people running the race with you, even ahead of you, those who are on that same narrow path. They're going toward the same goal. They've been running longer, though. They're a bit stronger. They're a bit fitter. And from them, your eye can be focused on Christ, yet following them as well to to, to lead you in the right way, learning from them how you press on in the right way, how to even get up when you stumble. this is the real value of such examples. They, They encourage us because they are fellow sinners, transformed by grace, seeking to follow Christ all life long. They're like pace setters. And as you keep pace with them, you can be assured you, too, will run well. And so back to Paul specifically, his example has been etched in Scripture, left behind for all the church to see, to learn from, to follow. He wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. And from him, you can learn how to run well. In fact, we've been pointing this out. This is a major theme in Philippians. So much of Philippians has to do with just Paul's personal example. It's a very autobiographical letter. And if I could just pick on one aspect of his example that that we've already seen, to be reminded of, though, how about his joy? This joy in the Lord. You remember Paul's circumstances at the time of, of writing Philippians He had been falsely accused, imprisoned in Rome while awaiting trial, where he he could die. And to make matters worse, other Christians were taking advantage of his imprisonment. They were maligning Paul. And they were preaching Christ for personal gain at the expense of Paul's reputation. So how did he respond? He, he, He was suffering. He didn't grow weary. He didn't retaliate. He didn't become depressed. But he rejoiced he found joy in the lord his confidence was in christ his hope was in the gospel and the gospel was still advancing despite his suffering and he found reason to rejoice and truly i think second only to christ you can learn from the apostle paul what this true joy in the lord looks like and that itself, by the way, this joy in the Lord, also happens to be a, another key theme in Philippians, if you remember. That Paul models for us that even if you lose your health, your wealth, your life, you can still have reason to rejoice. For if you've gained Christ, you, you've, really, you've gained everything. You've gained life and life eternal. In fact, Paul shows us how gaining Christ, it's worth losing everything. And counting all as loss that you might gain him. For if if you have him, you, you have the treasure. You have the pearl of great price. You have life eternal. And so we learn from Paul's example where he says, For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Famously, Philippians 121. You can learn what that means from no one better than the Apostle Paul. Now, that being said, Paul's not the only example for us to to follow along. He's not the only pace setter in this race of of faith. There are others. And so in verse 17, keep, keep reading, he says, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Observe here pictures taking note of, marking out, locking your sights on someone. You should... Also find those who, they're walking according to the pattern of Christlikeness and, and follow them too. Latch onto them like, like a shadow. Just, just stick with them. Walk how they walk. Serve how they serve. Worship as they worship. Grow as they, as they grow. Just live as they live. Now, I think it's not until you have kids that you realize the raw power of example Parents, you know your, your young kids—they go through. Some are laughing now. You go through that. They, they go through the stage of, of parroting, where they just repeat everything they see and hear. For sometimes for the better, usually for the worse. We're probably trying Noah right now, and one of the the best helps is Olivia. The good example of his older sister, kind of show him how it's done at someone his size. That's a good example. Sometimes not so much. We went to the beach a while ago, and an angel just. Naturally, put sunscreen on Noah's face, just getting him a good lather going on. And obviously, he's very fair-skinned, protect him from the sun. Well, a few days later, he had found a tube of diaper rash cream lying around, which kind of looks like sunscreen. So he just walks into the room, and his face is just completely covered with diaper rash cream, like every square inch of face. I don't know how he did it. But this is the power of examples. You just saw it done, did it. In a way, though, we we should be like this, carefully observing others and mimicking their life, just doing what they do. Of course, the kicker is finding the right examples, having having the right models for you to follow. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Not just him, anyone who's walking the way of Christ, following in the mold of Christ, the pattern of Christlikeness, you should follow. You would do well to follow them. We already highlighted the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus from chapter 2, if you remember that. But really, we could say that to the degree that any person follows Christ, you can follow them. And that's what Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1. He said, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. It's like, as he follows Christ, you can follow him. And so it goes for, for anyone And so at this point, I want to ask you two questions. First, are you following the right examples? All of us, whether you realize it or not, we are being influenced by others. Just how we are as creatures, we are easily influenced by others. The question is, for for good or for bad? And so are you intentionally setting your sights on godly influences, that, that you are purposely trying to follow them, follow after them, First, are you you searching and studying the scriptures that you might behold the examples left behind in scripture? And then secondly, are you seeking out living examples, people who are still alive today who can show you here's how to follow Christ? Who do you have in your life that is ahead of you in the race that you can look up to? Are you engaged in any sort of a discipleship relationship with a man or woman of god we can just ask them all, all the practical questions like now how do you how do you do this christian life how do you how do you study your bible how do you keep your cool when someone offends you and wrongs you and and more don't wait but you should be seeking out such examples and discipleship relationships in your life and on the flip side a second question are you being an example for others to follow Can others follow you? Because part of this chain of discipleship is is that as you grow, as you mature in your Christ likeness, that you in turn become the pattern for the next generation of believers. You become the one whom they can follow and and ask those questions and, and learn from. So let me just ask you are you exemplary? Are you an example for others to follow? Could you say to someone new in the faith, like, hey, just follow me as I follow Christ. Just imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can you say that? Would you be comfortable saying that? Or does that make you maybe squirm in your seat a little bit? Or how about this? What if everyone in the church actually did follow your example? What if everyone in the church was just like you, meaning they read their Bible as much as you? They prayed as much as you. They evangelized as much as you. They attended church as much as you. They gave as much as you. They served as much as you. They loved others as much as you. They sinned as much as you. If that actually happened, all based on you, what kind of a church would this be? Would it be a a healthy, vibrant, thriving church that's holy and pure, or a spiritually sick, empty, poor church that's ridden with sin, would it be a church full of saints, a church full of hypocrites? For some of you, it might be a scary thought. For all of us, it should be convicting because none of us have arrived. Like we just learned in the previous passage, all of us fall short of this standard of perfect Christlikeness. But let the conviction sit and settle and, and, and have you press on. Press on and do so, as Paul says here, intentionally following the examples of others. While seeking to grow as an example yourself, lest you inadvertently lead others down the wrong way. Now speaking of the wrong way, there is a wrong way and and there are plenty going going down that road. And so next we find a picture of of the wrong way. Secondly, a picture of running the wrong way. Simple enough, but but powerful. A picture of running the wrong way. Look again at verse 18. He says, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. After pointing us to the examples to follow on the right way, Paul highlights now some examples to avoid. People who are, they're going the wrong way, and if you follow them, well, where do you think they're going to take you? And the problem is that this way ha- has a destination that that's not good. It leads to destruction. And so beware. Now, hearing this up front, you probably think that Paul is going to parade out some really evil unbelievers and use them as as these negative examples to avoid. But that's not what he does. What makes this passage so shocking is that Paul highlights, as bad examples, Christians, or at least so-called Christians. In this passage, he's warning us against following false believers, those who walk so contrary to the way of Christ that they're now enemies of the cross. It's pretty serious. And so these people, they serve as a cautionary tale for the church. Watch out lest you... Follow them lest you become like them. Now, to get more specific, who exactly are these people? It appears they're outsiders. We don't get the impression that they were already present in the Philippian church in great numbers. Paul knows about them. He's warned them about these people before. In fact, now he says he weeps over them. And just going off of what we know about Paul in the New Testament, it seems that Paul reserves his tears for. Professing believers. In other words, it doesn't seem like Paul would be weeping over pagans who are living like pagans. That's expected. That's just what they do. Rather, this seems to be a group of people who claimed Christ. They once made a profession of faith, but now that they're walking in darkness. This most certainly would cause Paul serious spiritual grief to see people he thought were sheep and now they've turned away, they've fallen away. So putting it all together, it appears that Paul is warning the church against a group of of seemingly itinerant false teachers and false believers. Philippi was on a main highway, east to west. Lots of people passed through. Corinth had already succumbed to its share of these false teachers with their bad teaching, And, and Paul probably is realizing that it's not going to be long before they wind up in in Philippi, which wasn't too far away. So he warns the church against their way, though, because these people, they're they're certainly going the wrong way. Whoever they are, that much is is crystal clear. They're, They're going the wrong way. And judging by how Paul describes these people in verse 19, which we'll see in a second, it appears these false teachers are of the sensualist variety. There were many people in the early church who had latched onto Greek philosophy. Many were really the precursors of what would become known as Gnosticism, where they sus- subscribed to this very Greek idea that all things spiritual were good, all things physical and material were bad. And then they joined us with Christianity. And so the, the real salvation Christ offers is spiritual. He saves your soul, your body, though. There's no salvation. Your body is not going to be redeemed. It is passing away. Your body doesn't matter. And so many took this to mean that you can actually do whatever you want with your body, so long as your your spirit is saved. We know for a fact that people like this had already infiltrated the Corinthian and Galatian churches. People who, Galatians 5.13, turned their freedom in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh. People who, 1 Corinthians 6:12 they clung to this phrase, all things are lawful for me and therefore indulged in, in the lust of the flesh. Jude encountered people like this. He, he warns of them in Jude 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our lord into licentiousness and deny our only master and lord jesus christ such warnings like this they're found in just about every new testament letter but paul he, he's not being cavalier about these people he, he weeps over them because their actions have proved them to be enemies of the cross of christ do you realize what the cross teaches us about what God thinks of sin? It should be pretty clear. He doesn't like it. He hates it. It is antithetical to his ways. First John 1.5. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. That, that's talking morally. And so, like like the next verse, First John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. You see, such people are false believers. Don't confuse possession of faith with profession of faith. They're different. And for these people, their profession of faith was proven a lie by their actions. Look, you're not saved by your actions. You're not saved by right living or godly living. We get that. You're saved by by faith in Christ alone. But if you're truly saved and he makes you born again, you will change. You will live rightly, at least to a degree. But deceived is the Christian who thinks he can just follow sin and follow Christ at the same time. They're going in completely opposite directions. Again, we're not perfect. We still fall short, which is why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins sins, and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that that doesn't describe these people. We're talking about those Christians who indulge in the flesh with no repentance, no remorse. And the fact of the matter is that they're just walking in darkness. They haven't been born again. And if you follow them, you're, you're going to share their ruin. So hopefully you can see this is serious stuff. These, these are high stakes And to make matters worse, Paul says there's there's not a few like this. Verse 18, he says, for many walk. There's many. There's many people then, now, calling themselves Christians. Anyone can do. But they're walking still completely in the darkness. And so you should watch out for them and avoid them. Don't follow them. And to help with that, Paul proceeds to give Four marks of these bad examples just to point them out. First, their destiny. Their destiny, verse 19, it says their end is destruction for false teachers and false believers. Sadly, the only thing waiting for them is destruction if they don't turn back. If you deny Christ, he will deny you. And you'll be forced to pay for your own sins in the judgment. You don't have a Savior. You can't appeal to Christ. You rejected him. So you're gonna to have to pay for yourself and you will be judged. We've heard from Jude, we've heard from John. Let's let's hear from Peter. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as also there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, but their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. It's especially those who lead others astray who will receive the strictest judgment and condemnation. So beware. Now, you hear this. These are some serious warnings in Scripture against people who supposedly are in the church. You might be disturbed, though, thinking like, wait, I thought salvation just comes by, by believing in Jesus. And these people, they, they said they believed in Jesus. So why, why are they being condemned? Look, it's true. You are saved by, by faith. In Christ. But Jesus himself explained the nature of true saving faith, what it looks like, a faith that saves. In a passage you guys know very well, Matthew 7 21 through 23, Jesus himself says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The difference between possession and profession of faith is new birth, living it out, evidence that you've been changed. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Just a group of people. Yeah, they call him Lord, but they they live in the darkness. They have a profession of faith, but it's evident they don't possess faith because they're still walking in the darkness. And if Christ really gets a hold of you and saves you, he changes you. You can't help it. It's called new birth. It just happens to you by faith, and you now walk a different way. Yeah, you might stumble, but you don't walk in the darkness. And these people, they just weren't born again. They were never made new which revealed their faith as false. They became Christians. They went to church for some other reason, maybe social or ritual or cultural, whatever. But by their lack of a changed life, by still living in lawlessness, they merely proved Jesus was never really their Lord. We're also sinners. uh, sinners. We all still stumble, but there's a clear difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness. And so bottom line, don't be deceived. Don't walk in the darkness. And don't follow those on that path that leads only to destruction. Secondly, a second mark of those on the wrong way, their deity, their deity. Verse 19, it says next that their, their God is their appetite, whose God is their Appetite, word for appetite, literally the word for belly or stomach, but obviously figuratively used here, referring to one's fleshly desires. This is the appetite of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And these people were mastered by their appetite. Being false believers, they were still enslaved to the flesh. The difference, true believers, we still have it, but we're no longer enslaved to it, bound to it. But these people, they they were. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 profiles unbelievers and says they are deceived and, and disobedient and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. You see, Christ is not really their Lord and their God. Their, their flesh, their, their lusts are their Lord and their God because it's evident because they, 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 they don't obey Christ, they obey their lusts and their pleasures. They're still enslaved. To the flesh. Over in Romans 16, Paul gives another very similar warning against such people. He uses that same word for appetite. So so listen to Romans 16, 17 through 18. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you've learned and turn away from them. Turn away. For such men are slaves. Not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Same thing. You find it really just every book of the Bible pretty much. Keep an eye on such people. Mark them out and then turn away. Avoid them. They will deceive you if you follow after them. But wait, isn't this isn't this unloving? Isn't this intolerant? Shouldn't we just, you know, accept such people in the name of tolerance? Well, no. That's like the farmer saying, well, I feel really bad for that fox out there in the cold. I think I'll just let him sleep in the hen house tonight. You know, there's a time for protecting the flock and guarding your own soul. That doesn't mean we hate such people. We, we hold out the truth, the gospel, in love, the greatest thing we can do is share the gospel with them that they might be saved. And so like Paul, we, we should weep over them. But at the same time, we, we don't fellowship with them that we too are not deceived. Again, we give the same caveat that as believers, hey, we still have the flesh. We wage war against the lust of the flesh. We, we fight, we stumble, but we press on. But again, the difference is the true believer who, who fights, who wrestles. And the unbeliever, the false believer, who, who doesn't, who completely gives in, they're still enslaved with no remorse or repentance, they, they love it. And so, which is you? Are you wrestling or are you mastered? And if you're here today and, and you might be convicted that your God is still your appetite, repent before it's too late and turn to Christ. A third mark of the bad example their delight. Thirdly, their delight. Verse 19 says next that their glory is in their shame. Whose glory is in their shame. This, this, is a, this is a big one. If you remember earlier from Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, true believers are described as those who, who glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Christ. And it just means we, we boast in Christ. We take delight in, in him. You, you take pride in in your relationship with Christ, your new identity in him. But false believers, they are secretly still ashamed of Christ, ashamed of the gospel. They know their lives outside of church don't match up. And so they they try as hard as possible not to associate with Christ whatsoever, at work or school, family, whatever. And in reality, you look at their lives, their, their real joy, what excites them is in their shame. In other words, they take pride in that which should cause them shame. They delight in the evil that they profess to hate. But meanwhile, they're, they're living in it and loving it. This was actively happening at the Corinthian church at the time. Again, to pick on the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us there's a man in the church who was engaged in this serious sexual morality. It was so bad, even the pagans were shocked. Like, like that went too far. When the pagans think you've gone too far, you've got a problem. But the church, the Corinthian church, which you might know, they prided themselves on their their advanced wisdom and spiritual insight and spiritual gifts. And so they, they tolerated this man's sexual sin. And in fact, instead of removing him from the church, they boasted in their tolerance and just the freedom we have in Christ. And Paul hears about it. What does he do? He severely... Rebukes them because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. The church cannot tolerate sin, for it is opposite the way of the Lord. And sadly, though, this issue is becoming more and more prevalent and problematic in the church today with the sexual revolution, literally, what a generation ago and all history has been considered shameful namely sexual morality, homosexuality, trans- transgenderism. Now it's accepted and celebrated in the church under the false flags of tolerance and love. And so there are churches who are literally f- taking glory and boasting in their shame, like literally living this passage out 2,000 years later. And to this, all we can say is Isaiah 520, woe to those who call evil good And good evil, who substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness. And at the very least we we still hold out the gospel in love, but don't go their way. And finally, number four, a fourth mark of the wrong example their disposition. Their disposition, seen at the end of verse nineteen, as they set their mind on earthly things. They set their minds on earthly things. One of the clearest marks of a true believer is their heavenly mindedness. And we come to know as you follow Christ and you're in the light, yet the world is dark, it just becomes very evident. This world is not our home. It's not our hope. We long for Christ and where he is on high. And so we set our minds on the things above. But there are some they have no real concern for, for heaven they're, they're comfortable in this world because they're living in the darkness. They don't feel the, the conflict there. They're still consumed by the world. They, they love the world, and so they set their minds on the things of the world. If We can go back to First John 2 again, verses 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's like the same thing. All these passages, they're all the same. Two ways. From Psalm 1 to 1 John 2 to Philippians 3. Two ways. The way of the world. The way of the Lord. One Leads to heaven. As Paul goes on to say in verses 20 and 21, which we'll be saving for next week. The other, the way of the world is passing away. It's going down. Leads to destruction. And the question is, will you realize this before it's too late? Are you on the right way? Have you made Christ your Lord and Savior? Crying out to him in faith for hope, for new birth, for new life. And thereafter, are you, are you really following him and following the right examples who will take you closer to him, not, not further away? Follow Christ and make sure you're running the right way. And really, as a final application here, we see such, such an emphasis on, on the power of examples. Don't underestimate the power and the influence of examples in your life. Paul gets this, which is why he warns them here and, and all over the place that this is such a big deal. Like we learned in Psalm 1, don't get your counsel from, from the wicked, from the world, but from the Lord and from his word. Look, I know you get this by now, but one last verse. Just listen to an excerpt from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. There Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. He goes on to say, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. And there it is again, same thing. Another serious warning against those who hold on to some veneer of spirituality, but they're, they're, they're long lost and they're in the darkness, and so avoid them. Now, I, I, you get it by now, you've heard it, you understand, but are you really watching out? Maybe you find yourself struggling to follow the Lord. You know what the right way looks like, but you just feel that those, those desires of the flesh, they're strong, and you just feel like you're, you're being carried away into the wrong way. What can you do? I talk to people like this often enough who are they're struggling in their walk, And I often get the same picture. First, I'll ask, you know, how much time are you spending reading the Bible, studying the scriptures, listening to sermons, letting the truth of God influence and fill your mind? And if they're being honest, they say, you know, maybe five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, sometimes at best. And then they ask, how much time are are you spending consuming media from TV to movies to music to Internet? And they'll answer something like four to, to eight hours a day. And do you, do you see a problem with this? And let's just face it, the vast majority of the media, our culture, pumps out, not all of it, but the vast majority, do you think it's, it's highlighting the way of the Lord or the way of the world? It's Like, that's a no-brainer. Our culture is obsessed with self, greed, materialism, sex. Their values are reversed, where honesty is shocking. Purity is despised. Integrity is mocked. And whether you realize it or not, you're being fed this worldview by most media. Now, it's not a sin to watch TV. We get that. But look, if if you're just pumping it in, chances are you're getting a lot of the wrong stuff. And whether you realize it or not, this message, it is being fed to you nonstop by the media. And so you have a person who, throughout a week, they're filling their mind with maybe 20 hours of the way of the world with maybe, what, 30 minutes of, the way of the Lord, and what do you expect? What do you expect's going to happen? Who is winning this war of influence in your mind? And then they wonder, you know, hey, why, why is my spiritual life suffering? Why do I feel distant from God? Why am I struggling with sin so much? Why, why is my fire getting colder? Well, no doubt. Wake up. You're walking in the counsel of the wicked without even knowing it, which is how it is today. And so we actually find here, really, in a way, a very pertinent application for Christians in an age where the world's influence—it's literally everywhere now. It's like it's in your pocket. Access to all the the lusts of the flesh and the ways of the world—it's everywhere. And we live in the worst country for it, literally the worst country when it comes to the way of the world. It's the new Babylon. And so, from false teachers to celebrity culture, just beware filling your mind with the way of the world. You have to remember this world, it's not our home. So, so don't settle in. Don't get comfortable. Be uncomfortable. And, and then run to Christ. Turn your thoughts toward him. We're running a, a race, a run to Christ. So r- keep running. Run the right way, which is heavenward. We'll learn in the next passage next week about that heavenward focus But for now, as we've learned putting it together, just just press on. Run well. Run in the right direction. Run after the right examples. And keep running until Christ returns. Let's run in the right way. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we take this call to action and, and this charge seriously this morning that your word penetrates our hearts and convicts us convicts all of us we need this is what your word does why it's so powerful living active, sharper than a two-edged sword able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit right to our hearts lays open our hearts lord and we need to hear because to a degree all of us have been taking counsel from the waves of the world it's just around us everywhere, which is why we need to, to double our efforts and, and all the more be convicted and, and called to to watch out, to beware. The, the way of the Lord, it, it's narrow. There are few who find it. And even once you're on it, it's still hard to, to keep your balance. And that's why we need admonishments, reminders, encouragements to press on and to go the right way. And Lord, you've, you've given us in your in your wisdom and grace examples, some chiseled in scripture, others alive before us today that we can follow. And I pray we we take that call seriously as well, to to purposefully, intentionally set before our eyes men and women of God who can show us how how to walk, how to run, how to live for Christ. In a very dark world, we need examples, good examples, all the more today. So may, may they be before us and may we follow after. Ultimately looking to Christ, to be like him, to be with him, our gaze is heavenward, Lord. We long for you and you to return because we confess, and I pray everyone in here can confess. This We get it. This world is not our home. We long for more and your redemption. So we pray you come quickly, and until then, by your grace and the Spirit to empower us, help us to press on, to run, and to run the right way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.